So here we are, it's chapter 2. Paul is still in the middle of this kind of autobiographical section of the first part of Galatians. And he's doing a few things here. First of all, he made a case in chapter 1, first and foremost, that there is only one gospel message that brings true salvation. That anything that is added to that or taken away from that actually makes it not the gospel. Do you follow? So Paul says, there is one gospel. It is the gospel that I preached to you when I was with you, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He was buried and he came back to life. He was resurrected, then was ascended to the right hand of God and is now seated at the place of honor. And those facts about who Jesus is do something in our life when The Holy Spirit gives us faith to believe it. What happens is work is done on our behalf. That those specific things that Jesus did cause displacement in our life. That sin was displaced. Our separation from God was displaced by the work that Jesus did for us in his perfect life, in his substitutionary and sacrificial death, and in his resurrection for us and in our place. And Paul says that when you try to add anything to that to gain salvation, that it ceases to be the gospel. Or if you take anything away from that. So if you try to say Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, then that is no longer the gospel. Or it wasn't really him who died on the cross. It's not really the gospel. Or maybe he didn't really suffer. That's not the gospel because all of those things are relevant and important to the message that the gospel is and what needed to be accomplished in order for us to find justification before God. Or if you come along and you say, well, all that's well and good. Jesus really did suffer. He really did die. His life really was perfect. And he really did come back from the dead. But you kind of still need to follow the Jewish law in order to really make sure that you're in. Or you really need to make sure that you pray these prayers or say this specific thing or make sure that when you die at your funeral, someone makes sure that you do some kind of specific, you know, mumbo jumbo, to make sure that you get into heaven. That's baloney and it's not the gospel. Anything that is added to what Jesus has done or takes away from what Jesus has done causes what your faith is in to cease to be the gospel and ceases to be the thing that has the power to save. Because the only way that you can be saved is if your faith is in Jesus alone. It cannot be anything that I've done added to what Jesus has done is what's going to get me in. Well, you know, I, I believe, yes, Jesus, the son of God, you died for my sin, but I'm just really trying hard uh, to be good. Well, the harder you try to be good, the more you walk yourself right out of the gospel. And this is the case that Paul is making because there are some who had infiltrated the church and had begun to say, yes, Jesus, but... You need to be circumcised and you need to follow the Jewish ceremonial laws of diet and cleanliness if you really, you know, just to make sure, you know, kind of seal the deal. And so Paul's making this case that there's only one gospel message that brings true salvation and also that he has been ordained by Jesus himself to proclaim this message. And he tells us how that he was once a great persecutor of the church and also at the same time zealous above all of his peers for the traditions of his fathers. Now, why was that so important for Paul to say? Why is it important for us? This is why. Because it means that as it pertains both to religious activity and to absolute deprivation that Paul trumps us all. He was a Pharisee of Pharisee. That means, uh, even in another letter, Paul's able to say, in keeping the law, I did. Like, he kept the law. So if anyone ever could have said, man, they kept the law, and if anyone had a chance of actually being good enough, Paul did it. 
But then on the flip side of that, which actually caused him to break the law, he became a murderous uh, villain against the church where he was literally breathing, the Bible says in Acts, breathing threats of murder against the church, against the Christians, and sought authority from the people in Jerusalem to literally drag men, women, and children from their homes and throw them into jail so that they could be prosecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? It means any murderers in here this morning that want to own up to it, um, maybe you shouldn't do that. But (laughs) chances are, hopefully, there are no murderers in here this morning uh, who are happy to be murderers, okay? Um, If you're unhappy to be a murderer and you're here, the grace of God is available even to you, and that's the beauty and the scandal of the gospel, all right? But Paul was a guy who was relishing. He was breathing threats of murder. Anyone like that, you're like, man, I just, I hate everyone. I want to kill everybody, and I'm, I'm quite pleased. It makes me happy, okay? We didn't, hopefully there's nobody in here like that this morning. Paul was that guy. And at the same time, he was also the guy who was religiously keeping all of the law. So what does that mean? It means that if you're in here and you got saved out of the womb, like you came out screaming hallelujah as a baby, it's like you don't remember not being saved, that all your Sunday school pins, all the memory verses that you memorized, all your ch- kids' church attendance, and and your sword drills that you have won, and the way that you tried to obey your mom and dad for this is right and pleasing to the Lord, that you may have a long life. So let's just pretend like you didn't do that selfishly anyways. Um, all of that means nothing compared to Paul's religious observance to the law. And on the flip side, if you have run from God your whole life, you've lived your life in absolute depravity, you, you have, you've never done anything righteous in your life, and even here this morning, you're sitting here and you're like, I really don't even know why I'm here because I know I'm going to walk out these doors and I'm probably not going to be able to do it the way that I think everyone else might be doing it. Don't worry, Paul's got you trumped there too. And because of that, he is, this is why Paul is such a beautiful case study for us in the grace of God and the sufficiency of Christ. Because at the end of the day, Paul says, all of my righteousness is as filthy rags. Or uh, he actually, that's what Isaiah said. Paul says all of his righteousness is a big dung heap. And then on the flip side, he also says, but I am the chief of sinners. And so Paul's entire life and ministry is is a beautiful case study for us in the grace of God extended to sinners in need of a Savior and the sufficiency of Christ whose righteousness becomes our righteousness through the imputation that that we get through faith in Jesus Christ. But then in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1, Paul utters these beautiful words, words that for those of us who have been called in God's grace can describe each of our own lives. And so I want you to look there. It's, it's not in your paper. Galatians 1, 15 and 16. And Paul utters these words, words that absolutely describe your life as well, and you need to own them. You need to own them and 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 relish these words. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. When he who had set me apart was pleased to reveal his son to me. Let me ask you a question. Where does salvation come from? Where does true salvation come from? It comes by revelation for every single one of us. Jesus must be revealed to us. We don't come to a conclusion on our own. Even those who have cognitively reasoned their way to Christ, at some point, the the 
Tetris pieces begin to kind of fall in line. The Rubik's Cube begins to come together. And even when it's set in front of them, the Holy Spirit still must quicken their hearts and reveal to them that Jesus is Lord. Because as long as our hearts are unregenerate, we will see the finished Rubik's Cube that says to us, Jesus is Lord, and we will deny it. And so salvation can only come when the Holy Spirit has revealed Christ to us as the Son of God and as Lord and Savior. Otherwise, we will see it plain as day in front of us. And just like Romans 1 says, we will, all of us, deny it and trade the truth of God for a lie. So how does salvation come? Where does it come? It comes by revelation. Jesus must be revealed to us. And that's what Paul is saying. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. That means that there was a specific moment that God in his sovereignty was pleased to reveal Jesus to Paul as the son of God. It couldn't have happened before. It couldn't have happened later because God is the one who was in control. God is the one who was orchestrating the events of Paul's life. God was there when Stephen was stoned and the coats were laid in front of Paul. And God was the one that decided when Paul was on the road, on the way to Damascus, that that was the moment he was going to show up and reveal his son Jesus to Paul as Christ. And that's what he did. And so what does that mean for us? It means in the same way that the Spirit of God will override your natural bent as a sinner and reveal Christ to you as Savior and Lord, and you will bow before the one who is exalted above all. The end. There is only one appropriate response when the Holy Spirit reveals Christ as the Son of God to you. Only one, and that is submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Notice also that Paul says, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Let me tell you this, you were not rescued, you were not saved from your sin and brought into relationship with God through Christ just so that you can be saved. You were not rescued just so you can Go to heaven or have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not why God rescued you in Christ. He rescued you in order that you might be his workmanship created for good things that he had planned for you long, long ago. As Ephesians 2.10 says, he reconciled you and rescued you and saved you to be reconciled to God and his family, the church, and together, as his family, as the church, all of us are sent back into the world to preach the gospel just like Paul and to be a blessing and an encouragement to our family, Jesus Church. So let's get back to work in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So let's stop here. 14 years have passed. That means Paul has kind of skipped ahead in the story. Remember, this is this autobiographical, uh, like how I broke that word down, this autobiographical part of, of the book here. And Paul is kind of giving his testimony how God brought him to faith in Christ. And then he jumps ahead in the story and he says, 14 years have passed. Paul is in the middle of delivering these details of his testimony, how God in Christ, hunted him down, overrode his free will, and made him a believer in Jesus as Savior and Messiah, the only one through whom Paul could have reached the Father, and the only one through whom his and our sins can be forgiven and we can be justified. But here he jumps ahead, and so let's see what that means. First of all, what he's relating in the retelling of his own story is the independence that he has had from the apostles. So when he says 14 years later, what that means is there has been a period of over a decade where Paul has been freely preaching the gospel, 
planting and establishing churches, setting up elders in those, making sure that they're being run appropriately according to the plan of God, according to the work of Christ. He, he has traveled, he has done several uh, missionary journeys uh, throughout uh, the, near, uh, the Near East over there. A lot of time has passed. What does that mean? It means nobody has been chasing Paul around saying, wait, wait, no, stop, Paul, stop. Do you see what he's establishing there just by saying 14 years have passed? What that means is I've been doing this now for a while, right? And in that culture and in that time, for the Jews and then also for the Greeks, it was a little different, but go with me here for a minute. In Hebrew culture, at what point did a boy become a man? 12 years old. 12 years old. So when Paul says 14 years have passed, what is that establishing? Maturity. That there has been a maturity of his ministry, that, that, that enough time has passed for a boy to become a man in the amount of time that he has been preaching and proclaiming this gospel message, right? And he has done it independent of the apostles. And, and again, this establishes that he was appointed as an apostle, not by man, but by God himself, and he's already spoken in chapter 1 of going to Jerusalem and meeting with Peter and James. So what does that mean? It means that they did not stop him from preaching. So he meets up with Peter and James. They don't stop him. They don't correct anything that he's saying. And he is allowed now to go from Jerusalem and to preach and proclaim Christ as the only way of salvation for over 14 years. And it even says at the end of chapter 1, if you look back there real quick in verse 24, speaking of all the believers, but also especially this references Peter and James, and they glorified uh, God because of me, Paul says. So not only did they say there's nothing we're going to change with your message, but they're glorifying God because of the grace that God in Christ has extended to Paul and is now going throughout the other nations and surrounding neighbors of the Jewish people. Not because, they're, again, they're not glorifying God because Paul is such an amazing person. They're glorifying God because of the work of Christ in and through Paul. Secondly, the other thing that's being established here is, again, and kind of reiterating this, that Paul has lived in that liberty and independence, preaching the gospel for over a decade. He is not himself suddenly concerned with his message, Right? It's not like 14 years have passed and all of a sudden Paul wakes up one morning and goes, oh my gosh, you know what, I'm, oh man, what if, what if what I've been saying all this time is, is, is wrong? What, oh, oh no, maybe I should go back to Jerusalem and just check up, get a, you know, make sure we're, I'm on the right page here. That's not what's happening, Okay. Paul is not suddenly concerned about the content or the heart of his message. There must be another reason he is now, after all this time, going to Jerusalem. Okay? And then it says Paul takes two companions with him. Who does he take? He takes Barnabas. Barnabas, who was Barnabas? Barnabas was a fellow Jew and apostle who has worked very closely, even as a partner, in Paul's ministry to the Gentiles over the last 14 years. So he's taking a witness, someone who's going to stand by him as a fellow Jew, and he is going to witness and testify to the fact that the gospel is being proclaimed and Gentiles are being saved to legitimate faith in Christ before God. And he takes Titus. Now, why does he take Titus? Titus is a Gentile and Greek who had been converted by faith in Christ. Again, how, how did this happen? How did Titus become converted to faith in Christ? Did Paul and Barnabas speak a snappy, relevant message one day when Titus was hanging around that was like, you know, just blew his mind how, how just relevant this message was 
to Titus and, and he just couldn't believe how articulate these guys were? No. It happened the same way it happens for every convert to Christianity. God had chosen Titus before the foundations of the earth to be his. And at the time that he pleased, God through the Holy Spirit revealed Jesus as Lord and Savior and caused Titus to believe. So Barnabas is a witness. Titus is a case study. Later in Paul's life, he'll pin another pastoral letter that we have in the New Testament, ironically enough, named Titus, right? So this is the same Titus that later Paul will write a letter to. It is now a book in the New Testament that we have. And in that letter that he writes to Titus, Paul will actually call Titus his true child or son in the faith. There is emphasis here in Galatians 2 in the Greek that shows Paul's determination in this. So you notice it says that, uh, that he went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, comma, taking Titus with me. And in the Greek, that there's actually this emphasis there of determination, that it's almost this not, not in a sense like he shackled Titus and threw him in the paddy wagon and drove up to Jerusalem, but there's, there's this emphasis that there is very strong determination that Paul is set towards what he's doing. And there is distinct um, purpose in taking Barnabas and also Titus with him up to Jerusalem. Paul is not, and why is this important? It, it's not like... A lot of times we think in our, in our context, you know, like Paul's this pastor and, and Barnabas is kind of the assistant pastor and maybe Titus is like, you know, the youth pastor in training and they're like, you know, getting in the church van and going up to Jerusalem to the mothership for like a conference or something and they're going to introduce Titus to all the bigwigs up in Jerusalem. That's not what's happening here, Okay. He is taking Titus, hear me, to be placed before the apostles as a case study to be evaluated and for them to either confirm or dispute whether or not he is a true believer. And if he is confirmed to be a true believer, then whether or not he is also justified before God purely through faith in Christ, or should he now be subjected to circumcision and the dietary and ceremonial laws of Judaism in addition to his faith in Christ? Hear me. What's the one word they keep talking about? Circumcision. He is taking Titus to be put on display. Lucky Titus. Right? So is Paul just on a power trip? Is this some kind of mission of his own making? After 14 years, he just got tired of hearing the arguments and we're going to go settle this once and for all? Well, let's look at verse 2. I went up, he says, because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So first of all, Paul is not just on some mission of his own making, but he is responding in obedience to a revelation that he has received from Christ. That, that's what he means, okay? He's not saying, oh, I had a dream. When he says, I went up because of a revelation, what it means is that Christ himself revealed to him, Paul, you need to go. Take Barnabas, take Titus, and go. The time is now. Jesus has told Paul to go to Jerusalem and to take Barnabas and Titus with him. And he sets before them, notice what he says, though privately those who seemed influential, who would that have been? It would have been the original apostles that were still there in Jerusalem. Okay, he sets before them the gospel that he proclaimed to the Gentiles. So again, he brings the message that he's been proclaiming. And he says, is there a problem with this message? 
Tell me now before God, is what I am saying, is what I'm proclaiming a lie? Is this not what happened? And is this not the result of the work of Christ on our behalf according to all of the prophecy and all of the law that was laid down in the Torah? And, and again, remember who Paul is writing this letter to. Who is he writing it to? He's writing it to the Galatians who are what? Are they Jews? No, they're Gentiles, like Titus, right? So what is Paul saying? He's saying, hey, Galatians, I went up to Jerusalem. These guys who are telling you that the message is wrong or that you still need to be circumcised and you still need to adhere to the Jewish ceremonial laws, hear me out here. After 14 years of being in ministry and doing this, I went up to Jerusalem. I, I set out before the apostles, the guys, the very guys that these Judaizers are saying, well, the, you know, the apostles didn't send Paul up here. The very ones who they're talking about. Let me name them for you. And he does, right? James and Cephas and John. Who's Cephas? Cephas is Peter. Peter, James, not James, John's brother, but James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of John's already been uh, killed for his faith in Christ at this time. But Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John, the beloved, I set before them because they seem the most influential, the very gospel I preached to you. And you know what? They didn't have anything to add to it. And beyond that, I took Titus. Remember Titus? He's the guy that's with me all the time. He's a Greek and a Gentile just like you. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's setting up for them so that they can know and be assured that nobody back in Jerusalem thinks that they're off on some crazy, in some crazy town doing their own thing. Okay? And what does he say? I didn't leave anything out. Then he says, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Again, in the Greek here, we, we see this emphasis that almost speaks to a fear that Paul had in his heart. So what is Paul afraid of? He says, uh, we see here a fear that the apostle Paul had that his work in the gospel had been in vain. Not that he had doubted the message. Okay, so hear me here. When Paul says that I had run in vain, he's not thinking, well, maybe I'm going to show up and they're going to tell me I am wrong. Maybe I'm going to show up and they're going to tell me that, that this, this, we are off on our own mission here. Hear me. No matter what happened in Jerusalem, Paul was not going to back down or forfeit the message or the calling that his Lord had put on his heart and on his lips. So when he says to, to make sure that I was, had not or was not running in vain, he's not afraid of them contradicting his message because even if they did, Paul was going to carry on proclaiming the gospel that Jesus had shown up and delivered to him. What this means is that if the apostles in Jerusalem rejected Paul and his message and the conversion of Titus, that the church of Jesus at this point in history would have splintered. Because Paul would have carried on preaching that it was by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone to the Gentiles. And the apostles would have carried on preaching a Jesus plus works of the law message to the Jews. And the church would have been ripped in two. There would have been half that was Jewish believers led by the apostles in Jerusalem. And another half that was made up of Gentile believers led by Paul. And Paul would have seen that. To Paul that would have been a failure. That would have been a failure, as well as a destruction of the gospel message if the very ones who were there when it all happened rejected the truth and the gravity of what Christ's perfect life, his sacrifice and death and his resurrection really provided for those who believed. There is a lot at stake here in just this little bit of information that Paul is giving to us about his journey to Jerusalem. Truly, Paul was not just fighting for Titus. So he doesn't just take Titus up there and he's not just fighting for Titus. But he even says here in to the Galatians, what does he say? 
that he did it for them. And, and the truth is he did it for us as well. Because if the, if the church had splintered at that point, then where would we be? We would be in the same place today that the Galatians were then, wondering and doubting whether or not this message that we believed was the full gospel of Christ or not. Because there would have been a whole nother group that originated with the apostles that were preaching a different message. So there is a lot at stake here. It brings new meaning to the words, for the sake of the gospel, right? Paul goes to Jerusalem in obedience to a revelation from Christ saying, go. But why is he going? He's going literally for the sake of the gospel for all time. Verse 3, it says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So imagine for a moment being Titus. And I cannot help, especially knowing that, you know, Paul will write to Titus and call him his true child or son in the faith. I cannot help thinking about this and remembering Abraham and Isaac. Because God shows up to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, your true son in the what? In the faith. Why? Because God showed up and said, you're going to have a child even though you are past the age of bearing children and your wife is past the age of bearing children. So Isaac was not just Abraham's son in the flesh because truly Ishmael was Abraham's first son in the flesh, but Isaac was his true son in the faith, right? And here, according in, in obedience to a revelation from Christ, Paul journeys to Jerusalem, taking his true son in the faith with him, right? Not knowing what is really going to happen when they get to Jerusalem, right? Because remember, Paul was a Jewish zealot. And if Paul had been the guy that was in Jerusalem when Paul and Titus showed up, Paul would have been the guy that strapped Titus down and took out a knife and just made sure the job was done. So Paul takes, I mean, imagine this for a minute. Paul comes up to Titus. Hey, you're coming with me to Jerusalem. Oh, okay, why? Well, we're going to go see if the other apostles agree with those nut jobs that want to make you get snipped or not. And Titus is like, and if they do? And Paul borrows a line from Abraham. God will provide my son. <laughs> I mean, this is literally the context that these guys are going up to Jerusalem with. Titus was literally, hear me, imagine this. He was literally put on display and on trial. Could an uncircumcised Gentile really be saved and accepted in the faith? He literally would... First of all, okay, his faith would have had to been tested. Is his faith genuine? Is it true? And then, okay, go ahead, disrobe, because we just, we, we, we recognize your faith is true. Now we just got to make sure you're not coming on some kind of false pretense. We got to make sure you really aren't circumcised. I mean, what's really at stake here? This question is what it's, is at stake. Is Jesus' life, his death, burial, and resurrection really and truly powerful enough to fulfill the law for people or not? That's what's at stake. What's at stake is this question. Is Jesus' life his death, his burial, and resurrection, really powerful enough to fulfill the law for people or not? The other question that's at stake is this. Is it really just Jesus that makes us spiritually clean and acceptable? Or do we have to do some things to clean ourselves up too? This is what is at stake. And if the answer to either of those questions is no, then the gospel really isn't the power of God unto salvation. 
If it is true that religious observance to the Jewish law is still required, then at that time, it means that every Gentile convert of Paul for over 14 years is still lost in their sin. And the truth can be said of us today. Because whose gospel do we proclaim? And whose gospel have we believed? The same gospel that Paul proclaimed and preached throughout the Roman Empire. Notice too that Titus, it says, was not forced to be circumcised. Which denotes a couple of things. One, that there was an actual demand for this to be done. So there were actually some people there demanding that even though Titus's faith had been uh, validated, that he still should be circumcised. So there were some calling for his foreskin, all right? But it also denotes that quite possibly this, there was even a, an attempt to make it happen. But it was set aside by the apostles who did not require it. So this is why Titus was brought along. Like I said, lucky him. What a guy. But again, I can't help but think of Abraham and Isaac and Isaac willingly climbing the mountain with his father, trusting him when he says God will provide. And he did. And here, God provided as well. Why? Because Paul wasn't going on his own mission to just lay down the law and say, let's settle this once and for all. Like Abraham before him, like Moses before him, he was being obedient to a revelation from God that now is the time, go, and I will make this happen. Notice also that Titus' faith was put on trial before his body and lack of conformity to the Jewish laws ever were. This means that for us, even our faith can actually be judged according to what we confess to be the root of our salvation and how our lives line up with that confession. A lot of people will say, hey, hang, hang on, brother. Hang on, pastor. Only God can judge me. That's just not true. It's just not true. And all you have to do is wonder how pastors get put in the positions that they get put in to whether or not that is even the case. Because surely, hopefully, somebody could sit a pastor down and verify whether or not their faith was really in Christ before they put them over a church to shepherd and proclaim the gospel to them. Now, does it always happen? No. But should it happen? Yes. Can it happen? Yes. And even for us as a church, we can together validate and verify each other's faith in Christ. According to what? According to the confession of our faith. And the way our lives line up with that confession. Titus's confession would have been what? That he was relying on nothing more and nothing less than the perfect life, the sacrificial death, the burial, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ for him and in his place. And what would have been evident in Titus's life as a result of that, so it wasn't just semantics that he sang, right? If you can just say, I believe in the perfect life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for me and in my place, if you can just say that you're saved, if that's true, then it's witchcraft. Because that would just be an incantation, right? Why don't you come forward? And we treat the sinner's prayer that way, don't we? I mean, I've been, I've been in places where people will just bring a bunch of kids up and say, okay, everybody, repeat after me. Dear Heavenly Father, dear Heavenly Father, I believe, I believe. They don't give them any gospel. They don't teach them the gospel. They're, not, they're just trying to lead them in a prayer that they think saves them. That's witchcraft. It's not faith in Christ. The gospel must be proclaimed. The Holy Spirit must reveal that that is the truth about Christ. And He gives faith to believe. But then the Holy Spirit also does something else in our hearts. The same Spirit that quickens our soul and our heart to believe 
is the same Spirit that brings the fruit of the Spirit that Paul is going to get to at the end of Galatians in our lives. So Titus would have stood before them. He would have confessed with his mouth that he believed with his heart that Jesus that God raised Jesus from the dead, perfect life, sacrificial death for me and in my place, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God. Yes, I believe that, but the fruit of his life would have backed up that confession. Not to say that Titus was perfect, but that there was evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in his life, leading him and conforming him continually to the image of Christ. Titus would have had to have been proven to be a true convert in order to prove that his circumcision was not required to seal the deal. Because even if he could have said the right stuff, but his life didn't line up with what he confessed, the Jews would have demanded that he be circumcised just to make sure that once they cut off the foreskin, if that didn't push him over the edge. I mean, it sounds crazy, right? It sounds absolutely insane when you think about it. But that's where these guys were. And the, and the Galatians, remember what does Paul say? Who has bewitched you? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has, who has bewitched you? Because they have received this message that it's faith in Christ plus works of the law in order to be truly righteous. There is so much more here at stake than a small piece of flesh or even men's obsession with their own members. This is about whether or not the atonement of Christ is sufficient or not. Wayne Grudem says in Systematic Theology that the atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. The nature of the atonement involves both Christ's obedience for us and his suffering and death for us. He obeyed because we could not. He took the penalty for our sin and bore the full wrath of God against us in order to redeem and reconcile us because we could never pay on our own enough for it to be sufficient. And so Tim Keller says in Galatians for you, and you have it, in your listening guide there, the acceptance of Titus by Jewish believers was a vivid illustration of this principle, that an individual becomes spiritually clean and acceptable through Christ and not through any deeds or rituals. Not through any deeds or any rituals. Only through faith in Christ. Here's the deal, guys. We can never even the score. We can never even the score. But Christ has cleared the board. We cannot even the score, but Christ has cleared the board. The atonement of Christ is sufficient. Look at verses 4 and 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that when we begin to add in works of the law in order to obtain righteousness and justification before God. Now again, are works of the law evil? No, the law is righteous and perfect and holy and good. But it's when we try to keep the law to earn righteousness before God and justification that it actually causes the gospel to mean nothing to us. So we're not saying here, and Paul's not saying, you shouldn't do the stuff in the law. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that when you do the works of the law, that that is not what gains righteousness and salvation from God. Righteousness and salvation from God can only come through faith in Christ. Okay? But when you begin to adhere to works of the law in order to gain righteousness and gain salvation from God, which is impossible, it becomes what? Slavery. It becomes slavery. And so in verse 5, 
Paul says, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. What does this mean? It means that maybe Paul, Barnabas, and Titus had a BLT while the rest of them were eating their fish sticks. Right? They were there to make a statement that they had found freedom through faith in Jesus Christ, and they weren't going to come at us with any knives and cut anything off our bodies, and we're going to eat what God has declared clean and available for us, right? Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So it sounds kind of haughty and arrogant, but it's not. Again, Paul didn't roll up in Jerusalem on his own accord of his own thinking to settle the score. He goes up in obedience to a revelation from Christ. And so in obedience to a revelation from Christ, he was making a statement that freedom and righteousness and holiness all come through faith in Jesus Christ, not according to any religious keeping of the law. And so they had to prove that to be true, right? Paul wasn't eating a BLT and then going, oh, Father, forgive me. Right? They didn't secretly circumcise Titus, but then say, no, he's really still a Greek. They were making a statement. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What does that mean? That means that that was part of the revelation that Christ gave to Paul. I want you to go up to Jerusalem. Take Barnabas and Titus with you. You're going to put Titus in front of them as a testimony that it is only through faith in me that you are declared righteous and holy and saved. Barnabas will be your witness that not only has this happened in Titus, but in countless others of Gentiles and Greeks throughout the regions. And you are going to do this for the sake of the gospel, that the gospel that I gave to you on the road to Damascus might be preserved. And so Paul says to the Galatians, so that it might be preserved for you. And he says to us that it was preserved for us. You see, there are, these are the Judaizers, the same sect of people trying to confuse the Galatians and lead them astray with their Jesus plus message. Paul calls them here false brothers. What does that mean? It means to Paul, these guys, they were not even saved. Why? Because Jesus plus, gospel plus, is nothing at all. As soon as you start to try to rely in Jesus plus your own works of righteousness, you have walked outside the realm of what actually saves you. Now, you might say, what a jerk. How does he know? Why? Well, we just talked about that. True faith in Christ can be validated and verified according to a person's own confession of faith and how their life lines up with that confession. And so what happens here, though it seems like these guys part ways, what we actually find and what Paul says that he was given the right hand of fellowship, that there is actually unity and not separation between the church of the Gentiles and the church of the Jews. You see, these Judaizers were not true brothers in the faith. They were wolves in sheep's clothing, spies, Paul calls them, enemies and not partakers in the gospel. They, in fact, had rejected the gospel. They had heard of the atoning work of Jesus and of his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God, but had rejected the power of the gospel. And here's the deal. They wanted to, the benefit of hanging around the gospel, but they were not content to rest in the gospel and therefore could not allow anyone else to find rest as well. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? Mary sitting, resting, content at the feet of Jesus. Martha is running around like a chicken with her head cut off, right? Trying to get it all done. Put the little cucumber sandwiches out on the table, get the tea and coffee, whatever she had to do, clean the kitchen, do the dishes, whatever. And she comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, would you make my sister come and help me, please? 
right? Why? Have you ever been in a situation like that? You're trying to rest and relax and your spouse or somebody at work or somebody is running around crazy trying to get work done? Makes it really difficult to to rest, right? Why? Because when someone is working and someone else is resting, the person who is working cannot stand it. And they must do something to get that person up off their keister and getting work done, right? Can I get an amen? Amen. And, And you also, sitting there trying to rest, cannot rest Because when you're trying to rest and someone else is running around like a crazy person, it's not, you feel like you have to get up and help them, right? Now that's funny and we can laugh and whatever, but think about it this way. The the Galatian believers received the gospel message. It brought them to a place of rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. These Judaizers came in. They wanted to hang out around the gospel and get the benefit of the gospel community. Why? Because what did we learn about the gospel community in, in, uh, in Acts 2, 42 through 47? That there was fellowship there. That they held all things in common. They were taking care of each other's needs. They were on mission together. They were daily breaking bread together in each other's homes. They were listening to the teaching of the word. There's great benefit to the gospel community. But when they got in the gospel community, they couldn't sit still. Because they didn't really believe that it was only the finished work of Christ on their behalf. They felt like they had to keep getting busy doing the works of the law to gain their salvation. And what did that create in the community of faith for the Galatians? A spirit of restlessness and confusion. And so Jesus comes and he says the same thing to them and to us that he said to Martha. That Mary's chose the better thing. This is why. We must always contend for the gospel and for the unity that we have been granted in Christ and not allow those who seek to add to the message of Christ or to disjoint the church or lead us away towards conformity to religion or religious activity in the place of faith in Christ as the only source of our righteous standing before God. If Paul and Barnabas had given in, the gospel would have been destroyed, not only for the Galatians, but for us as well. Paul was not simply standing up for the Galatians, but for us as well. And what was the ultimate uh, end result? Look at verses 6 through 9, and we're going to wrap this up. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now again, at first glance, this seems like it can be a splitting but it is rather adjoining. The apostles extend the right hand of fellowship and the Jewish church and the Gentile church are united, not separated. But it's not just out of mutual friendship, right? They don't come together and go, well, let's agree to disagree. They come together and they're joined together and their unity extends from the same place that our unity must come from. The same unity that they experience is the same unity that we need to experience as a community of faith called Redemption Hill. And that unity doesn't come from our affinities, doesn't come from our tastes and preferences. That unity comes only from the gospel and from Christ. They are literally united around the message of Jesus, atoning work for us and in our place Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 25 are proven in this text. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Because here we see the Jews and the Greeks come together. And because they were both called, grace alone by faith alone in Christ alone was not folly, but it was the wisdom and the power of God. Those who seem influential, again, most likely likely refer to Peter, James, and John. And Paul says here that they added nothing to him. Now, again, that sounds almost arrogant, right? And they added nothing to me. But what he's meaning here and what he's saying here is they had nothing to add. There was no addendum. There was no um, change. There was no uh, uh, sort of um, amendment to Paul's gospel message that they could give. They heard it proclaimed and they said, yes and amen. That is the gospel. And so it's not a statement of arrogance, but rather saying they did not impose any restrictions or commands or amendments on his message or ministry. And here he also mentions that God does not show partiality, and this gives good instruction to us as well as the Galatian believers. Why? Because where does true teaching come from? Where does true authority come from to instruct our lives? Does it come from Pastor Mike? No. Where does it come from? The Word of God through the Scriptures. In other words, don't be led away or astray by every strange wind of doctrine that comes up, even if the person who is teaching it seems to be a person of prominence or eminence or importance, no matter how many people are following them or what their entourage or bank account looks like or how long they have supposedly been in the faith. Even the apostles were prone to fail and fall in their living out the gospel, as we'll see next week in something that happens with Peter. What do the scriptures say? What is the truth of the gospel? Is what this person is saying, does it really and truly line up with scripture and with the gospel? You see, scripture is where doctrine is pulled from, and where false doctrine comes to die. But the true gospel brings unity to the division between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. More accurately, we can say Jesus brought unity to both the Jewish and the Gentile believers here. Remember, Paul went to Jerusalem in obedience to what? To a revelation from Christ. Jesus will build his church. Jesus will will build his church. Jesus will build his church. And that's exactly what he is doing here in Galatians 2, and he continues to do it today. Daniel, will you come in? This whole thing keeps coming back to one repeating undulation of doctrine that Paul is nailing time and time again. True justification and ultimate salvation is only by grace alone, through faith alone, In Jesus Christ alone. Hear me, church. Only Jesus can make us clean. Only Jesus can unify us. Only Jesus can mend the rifts between us. Only Jesus can wipe the slate clean. And when He does the work, there is nothing left that is undone. When Jesus does the work, there is nothing that is left undone. And even when what we still experience in the flesh doesn't seem to line up with that, we can rest and be assured that there is nothing in our lives that Christ is not committed to seeing through to completion. Those things are just a reminder to us of the already, not yet, work of the gospel. That one day, 
Jesus is coming back to literally make all things new. And so Paul's only takeaway in verse 10 is this. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And this isn't just about Paul taking up alms for the poor in Galatia. This literally was in reference to the famine that was going on in Jerusalem, in Judea. And so again, we see unity here where Paul was eager to bring with him gifts from the other believers, the Gentile believers, to help support and encourage the, Jer- the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So this isn't just about taking alms for the poor. This is, again, about unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's so much at stake in the argument that Paul's making to the group, the Galatians. And as we prepare to receive the elements of communion, and Brian's going to come and instruct us in that this morning. Let us not forget that it is only Christ's work that makes us clean. Only Christ's work that makes us acceptable. Only Christ's work that can redeem a sinner's soul. Only Christ's work that can reconcile sinners like us to a holy God. God is holy. We are sinners. Jesus saves and Jesus sins. Let us today be sent out rejoicing that like Titus... We know that we are saved and made clean by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God Most High, who has made us also sons and daughters of God. Nothing more is required. All has been paid in full. May God bless his word to his people today.